Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Hello, Colonel. I understand this week we're going to get around to a topic we've been uh, edging towards for quite some time. Well, we've been talking about this topic a little bit, as a matter of fact, but we've kind of let current events sometimes eclipse it, and maybe that's appropriate because this is Constitution Classroom, and the Constitution, it's not a living document. It is an enduring document, a document that is intended for all ages. And so many times we just felt it was very appropriate that we looked at the things that are going on, like the raid on President Trump's home there in Mar-a-Lago in Florida and what that has to do with the Fourth Amendment and other issues like this and how the Constitution remains relevant to things we are doing today. But we wanted to get back to Hebrew law and its influence on the U.S. Constitution and to talk about a man of Jewish background here in America. His name was Oscar Strauss. He lived from 1850 to 1926, and he became the Secretary of Commerce and Labor for the United States. In other words, he was in the cabinet. And in 1884, he delivered a lecture in New York City. It was titled, The Origin of the Republican Form of Government in the United States and the Hebrew Commonwealth. The New York Times described his speech. We don't have the exact text of it, but it said, in the conception of the American Union, Mr. Strauss showed that how deeply Americans were imbued with religious principles. The Bible was studied as no people excepting only the Jews had studied it. They, of course, studied both the Old and New Testaments. Well, the Jews studied only the Old Testament. But when speaking about law and government, they relied primarily on the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And early Americans drew many parallels between the 13 colonies and the 12 tribes of Israel, between their crossing of the Atlantic and their struggles for independence, comparing that to the Hebrews crossing the Red Sea and their struggle for freedom from slavery in Egypt. And sometimes during the War for Independence, they compared King George III to the Pharaoh of Egypt. And at the same time, there were many in America at that time, like James Adair, Ed Winslow, the Puritan, Elias Boudinot, who had been the president of the Continental Congress, who believed that the Native Americans of this country may be descended from the ten lost tribes of Israel. In fact, Boudinot even wrote a book titled Star of the West, in which he expresses this view. And Cotton Mather, the famous Puritan preacher, identified with the Jews so much that he wore a skull cap, called himself a rabbi. Hebrew was taught as a regular subject at Harvard, at Yale, at Dartmouth, other American colleges. And even Thomas Paine. And Thomas Paine was not exactly sympathetic to Christianity, especially later in life. but in his Hamlet Common Sense, which he wrote in 1776, Thomas Paine says 
that the Hebrew scriptures are what are needed to build a case for American independence and against hereditary monarchy. Just to read you a little bit of what Payne says, he says, government by kings was first introduced into the world by the heathens, from whom the children of Israel copied the custom. It was most prosperous invention the devil ever set on foot for the promotion of idolatry. Monarchy is ranked in scripture as one of the sins of the Jews, for which a curse and reserve is denounced against them. All anti-monarchical parts of scripture have been very smoothly glossed over in monarchical governments, but they undoubtedly merit the attention of countries which have their governments yet to form. But where, say some, is the king of America? This is Thomas Paine speaking again, asking, where is the king in America? He says, I will tell you, friend, he reigns above and does not make havoc of mankind like the royal root of Britain. The Jews, elated with success, talking about Gideon's victory over the Midianites here, and attributed to the generalship of Gideon, proposed making him king, saying, Rule thou over us, thou and thy son and thy son's son. Here was the temptation in its fullest extent, but Gideon and the piety of his soul said, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you, the Lord shall rule over you. Gideon does not decline the honor, but denieth the right to give it. These portions of scripture are direct and positive, and they admit of no equivocal construction. That the Almighty here has entered his protest against monarchical governments is true, or the scriptures are false. Now that's Thomas Paine. And Thomas Paine is regarded as an enemy of Christianity, an enemy of the Bible. But this is his writing in 1776. Now, by the time he writes The Age of Reason in 1800, here he has clearly adopted a strongly anti-Christian tone. And so the question you have to ask is, did Thomas Paine believe the Bible in 1776 and then stopped believing it by 1800? Or did he not believe the Bible in 1776, but he knew he had to use the Bible to make his case for independence? Either way, it certainly says something about the biblical perspective of the American colonists, that you have to use the Bible to persuade them, even if you don't believe the Bible yourself. Anyway, all of this is to say that the Bible has a major influence on American law, American government. And in fact, in 1983, Congress had asked the president to declare that year, 1983, to be the year of the Bible, and President Reagan did so. But in the resolution that Congress had passed requesting this, Congress made the statement that whereas concepts of law in the Bible have influenced American law and government, notably the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. So our Congress, as late as 1983, recognized that the Bible has had an influence on American law. Well, with that in mind, let's look at what the Hebrew system of law and government is. So let's take a look then at principles of Hebrew law. And some of these are pretty close to their theological principles because these are very closely related. First principle is that God exists. He is one God. 
He is omnipotent, that is all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, all-present. He is righteous, just, truthful, unchangeable, and loving. And this idea that there is one God is described by E.C. Wines in his work commentaries on the laws of the ancient Hebrews as the unity of God. And it has profound implications for law and government. As Wines writes, all the ancient lawgivers called in the aid of religion to strengthen their respective polities. Thus did Menes in Egypt, Minos in Crete, Cadmus in Thebes, Lycurgus in Sparta, Seleucus in Locris, and Numa in Rome. But the procedure of Moses differed fundamentally from that of these heathen legislators. They employed religion in establishing their political institutions, while he made use of the civil constitution as a means of perpetuating religion. Thus, Moses made the worship of the one only God the fundamental law of his civil institutions. This law was to remain forever unalterable to all the changes which lapse of time might introduce into his constitution. What difference does it make if there is one, if, if there is one God? What does that have to do with law? If you believe in one God or a hundred gods, what does that matter as far as a view of God is concerned? Simply this, that God is the source of all truth. And truth is the foundation of law. So if there is one God and one truth, there is one true law system. Now, on the other hand, if you believe in a multiplicity of gods, there are going to be all kinds of conflicting truth claims and all kinds of conflicting law codes that you might have to decide which to obey. You would have one law code that was given by Zeus of the Greeks, another is given by Odin of the Norse, another that's given by Ra of the Egyptians, or Marduk of the Babylonians, or Ahura Mazda of the Persians. And so you have these conflicting claims. But if you believe there is one God, then there is one law. And so God is the source of all true law. That is the second principle. First principle, God exists, and he is just, omnipotent, and therefore there is one law. Second then, that God is the source of all true law. We read in Isaiah 33, 22, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Notice the principle here. We talk about three functions of government, and here in our country we talk about three branches of government, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. You see all three of these right here together in that one verse in Isaiah. The Lord is our judge, judicial. The Lord is our lawgiver, legislative. The Lord is our king, executive. All three together. God is the source of all true law. A third principle, then, is that law reflects the will and the character of God. Psalm 19.7 tells us, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, laws that are issued by pagan gods 
might be arbitrary, they might be whimsical, they might be unreasonable, but the law of God reflects the character of God. It reflects his truth, it reflects his righteousness, it reflects his justice. So we've seen three principles here already. First, God exists as one God. Second, God is the source of all true law. And third, God, law reflects the will and the character of God. Now a fourth principle, and this concerns God's justice. We've said that God is a God of perfect justice. Justice requires punishment for sin. A lot of people today have the idea that God is some kind of a generous sugar daddy up there who lovingly just overlooks or forgives sin. He can't do that because his character won't allow it. That would be inconsistent with his character. God is the one true God. He is just, and he can't compromise his justice. And that being the case, he can't compromise on sin. For example, there is a view called the token theory of the atonement. The token theory of the atonement is that when Christ died on the cross, he paid just kind of like a down payment in our sins, like earnest money, like maybe they paid maybe 10% of the penalty for our sins. And based on that, God is going to forgive the other 90%. God's character will not allow him to do that. His character is justice. Justice requires that sin be paid for in full. And the soul that sinneth, it shall die. We read in Ezekiel 4, or 18.4, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And so God has to punish sin. That's the fourth principle. Now let's go on to a fifth principle, that man is created in God's image. We read repeatedly in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 that in the image of God created he man. And that being the case, man's life is of infinite value. Man being created in the image of God is different from animals. Man is different from animals in a number of ways. For example, he has a power of reason. I'm not going to say animals don't ever think at all, but they don't have the power to think logically or sequentially the way people do. He also has a moral conscience that makes him responsible for what he does. He is able to commune with God in a way that animals cannot. Anyway, so man being created in God's image is special. And he is therefore of infinite value. We read in Genesis 9, 6, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Because human life is cheap? No, it's the exact opposite. For in the image of God made he man. We see the value of man. Psalm 8, 5, Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and has crowned him with glory and honor. Now, being created in the image of God means that there is a basis for human rights. 
because being created in God's image carries with it certain rights. Having a certain human dignity carries with it certain rights. Okay, so now man's created in the image of God, but as we saw before, God's justice requires punishment for sin. And now comes the sixth point, and that is that ever since the fall, man has been and continues to be sinful. That's true of all of us. In Psalm 51, verse 5, we read, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That means we have a sinful nature, and that sinful nature goes all the way back to not just our birth, but our conception. And Isaiah 53, 6, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So sin is a universal. All of us are sin. That's a great leveler. And there is some variation within Jewish thought as to the nature of sin among some Protestant Christians, Lutherans and Calvinists especially. They hold that man is totally depraved. Others might not carry it that far, but Catholics and Protestants would agree on what they call original sin, that man is born into a state of sin, that man acquired this sin nature at the time Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and have passed that sinful nature on to their children ever since. Now, the Hebrew concept of sin has not fully embraced the Christian doctrine of original sin, that all men since Adam and Eve have been born of the sinful nature, but they were fully cognizant of man's imperfections. And that doctrine is going to fully affect the Hebrew concepts of law and government. Hebrews, therefore, would reject utop utopian schemes based on the perfectibility of human nature, just as they would reject totalitarian systems based upon the absolute power of a ruler who has that same imperfect nature as everybody else. Okay, so man then, well, he is created in the image of God, is loved of God, and is very special and apart from all the rest of creation for that reason. Nevertheless, he has fallen into sin, and he continues to be sinful. And so we read further, as a seventh principle of Hebrew law, that God has established human government to punish crime and to preserve order. We see that very clearly in Romans 13, 1 through 7, and a number of other passages where we read that government is to be a terror to evil works and a rewarder of good works. And this tells us what the basic purpose of government is. It's not to engage in social engineering or income distribution. The function of government is to protect ordered liberty, to protect it against foreign invasion, and also to protect it against domestic crime. Function of government is to protect human rights against those either in or out of government or even foreign nations who would abuse those human rights. And we see that Israel enjoyed such protection under the judges 
and then under the limited monarchy of Saul and David. But we see that after the time of David under Solomon, the government of Israel veered more toward absolutism under Solomon and in the divided kingdom thereafter. So we are created in God's image, but we are sinners. And as sinners, we know that we are to be punished by God. And God not only has his eternal punishment for sin, which we will meet as believers at the judgment seat of Christ, and all will see at the great white throne judgment, but also we have the punishment that comes from civil government. Why does government punish sin? Why does government punish crime? Well, there are several reasons. One is as a deterrent that all Israel may hear and fear, as we're told in the scripture. We punish crime because that means others are going to see that punishment taking place and decide that crime doesn't pay and they will respect the rights of others and not engage in crime. We punish crime because God has given us some authority to avenge evil. And we read that term there in Romans 13, where we're told that he is the minister of God and avenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. And so it's to execute God's vengeance. God has given civil government only a portion of his authority to punish and avenge wrong, but he has given some authority to that effect. Another is for restraint. We've already seen deterrence, but there's the factor of restraint. If criminals are in, are in prison, they're not going to be committing crimes against others except those who are also in prison. And so it's a restraint. And finally, it hopefully will act as rehabilitation. It is our hope that when we punish criminals that they will see the error of their ways, they will be rehabilitated, and they will become useful citizens once again. Now, this is one of the things that, frankly, I like about the Hebrew system, is that, yes, they punished criminals. But once the punishment was over, the offender was welcomed back into society again, and the offense was something in the past. Here in our country today, we don't seem to let that happen. We build a criminal record, and that follows the person the rest of his life. I see value in the Hebrew system of letting people start anew and letting them be reintegrated into society once their debt to society has been paid. Now, one of the reasons that civil government punishes criminals, and this is one that's probably mentioned less than others, and we'll save that for after the break. Welcome back. This is Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. 
Colonel, I'm really enjoying your explanation of the uh, Hebrew law, and especially I, I love that it does have room for a person actually changing. And I think that's that's consistent. I think I think that's I would think that God would be on the side of people can change, you know, especially with His help. Um, you reminded me of a conversation I had with a defense attorney who was formerly an FBI agent, formerly a police officer. He wrote a book about arrest-proofing yourself. And his observation was this. In the old days when everything was done on paper rather than electronically, if a person you know, committed a crime, paid the price for it, and wanted to really make a fresh start, they could move to a community somewhere you know, far away or not so far away where they were not known, uh, change their name if they wanted to, but they could really have a fresh start at life. Today, that's not an option. You're on a sort of electronic plantation, and and there's really no way to get off because it will follow you everywhere you go. I thought it was just kind of interesting that our system of law doesn't doesn't really. Once you're part of the system, it, it's it's like the system wants to hang on to you. Well, I thoroughly agree with that, and I understand why we need to know something about people's past too, but that is such so readily available to lawyers and everybody else. It makes it very difficult for somebody to get a new start. And I agree with you, that is wrong. But there's a, another reason, a fifth reason for a government to punish crime, less thought of than others probably, but that's to prevent private vengeance. Seems like within people's hearts, there is a desire to right the scales of justice. When a crime has been committed, it's like those scales of justice have been tipped the wrong way. And until something is done to right them, they're going to remain unbalanced. And if government isn't going to punish criminals, then people are going to take it upon themselves. In fact, there are some legal systems where government didn't have the authority to impose punishment. And that was the result. The Viking law, these in some parts of the Viking law, the Althing or court had the power to convict someone of a crime, but they didn't have the power to punish that person for a crime. So what they would do is they would declare that that person is an outlaw, which means outside the protection of the law, meaning that the victim or the victim's family could execute their vengeance upon the person. Now, they would often do so. But in the process of doing so, we've got a problem, and that's that chances are the defendant here has relatives, too, who are on his side and are going to defend him. And so this led to blood feuds that went on for generations, kind of like the famous Hatfields and McCoys here in America. and partly for that reason, to prevent individuals from taking the law into their own hands, it seems preferable that the government do it instead. There is a saying that I've seen it attributed to John Knox, but I haven't been able to actually find where John Knox actually said this, but to the magistrate is given the sword of justice. And if he fails to use it, others may. In other words, if he's not going to execute justice, then others can take it into their hands to do so. The vigilante committees in the Old West, for example. And anyway, so that's another function, another reason why government punishes crime. However, and here is the eighth principle. 
Before government may punish crime, great precautions must be taken to ensure that no one is wrongly convicted. You know, in most pagan societies, the individual person was of minuscule value in compared to that of society and the state and the king or emperor. Individuals meant very little. And so as rulers sought to advance the public interest, which usually they identified the public interest with their own interest, if a few innocent lives get sacrificed in the process, no big deal. And in pagan society, as judges try to preserve law and order by punishing criminals in those societies, if a few innocent people get wrongly convicted, innocent lives are wrongly ruined, again, that doesn't matter much so long as the ends of society are ultimately served. But the Hebrew view and I should add the American, is very different. The Hebrew view was that man is created in God's image. He possesses human dignity, and he is of infinite value. And so we can't just randomly sacrifice innocent lives. The law must be exceedingly careful to ensure that as we punish the guilty, we make sure that innocent people are not wrongly convicted. And even of guilty people, their human dignity must be respected. They are still human beings created in God's image, even if they have committed crimes. And so the Hebrew legal system provides protection for criminal defendants that goes far beyond anything that nearly any other legal system anywhere in the world has ever provided. Among a few of the things that they provided were a protection against self-incrimination. Not only were you not required to incriminate yourself, you were not even allowed to incriminate yourself because if you did so, that would be like self-destruction, which would be a form of suicide, which they regarded as being wrong. Testimony had to be sworn, and in fact, punishment for perjury, for false testimony, was very strict. The punishment in the Bible for swearing falsely in a criminal case was the punishment that the criminal would have received had he been found guilty in that case. So you commit perjury in a capital case, and the punishment is going to be death. So they took this very seriously. And the reason for this is that we need to make sure that when people testify in court, they are telling the truth. George Washington, in his farewell address back in 1797, said, of all the dispositions and habits that lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. He went on to say, that were it not for religion, what would become of the sanctity of the oaths that we take in our courts? You know that in the early days of the American Republic, an atheist was not allowed to give testimony. The reason is that it was thought that if you don't believe that there is a God in heaven who hears all and sees all and knows all, and who you're not going to fool, even if you can fool the prosecutor and judge and everybody else, 
and before whom someday you're going to have to stand and give account. If you don't believe that, you cannot be counted on to tell the truth. Point of the matter is, we take strong precautions to make sure that witnesses are truthful. We also require that witness testimony be corroborated. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. One witness can lie. One witness can be mistaken. If you have two witnesses who agree, or more than two witnesses, the likelihood of their lying or the likelihood of their being mistaken is far less. And Hebrews, I think, recognize that in their system of justice, that if they're dealing with imperfect people, a system of justice was not going to be perfect. But they wanted to reduce the possibility of error to a minimum. Presumptions of innocence applied. And furthermore, if the defendant was found guilty in a capital case, then the, the, the court that heard it had to be unanimous. It had to be unanimous verdict of guilty in a capital case. But once they found him guilty, then they had to re-deliberate a second time the next day. And during that time, while we're waiting for the second deliberation, they would send runners down in the streets, and these runners or criers in the streets would say, so-and-so has been found guilty of murder. If anyone has evidence to clear him, let him come forward now. And all of this is designed not to let the only people get off, but to ensure that an innocent person is not wrongly convicted. You know, the question arises, I've asked my students this the famous statement of Sir William Blackstone, who based his commentaries to a great extent on biblical law and the old Anglo-Saxon law that had existed for a long time before. But he famously made the statement that it is better that 10 guilty men go free than that one innocent man be wrongly convicted. I often ask my students about that and ask whether they agree. And usually, nearly all of them, or probably all of them, will say, yes, I agree. So then I'll ask, would it be better that a hundred guilty men go free than that one innocent person be convicted? And there they hesitate a little bit, but some will simply stand on principle and say, no, it is on principle wrong that an innocent person be convicted. And so, yes, I'd say even better than a thousand. Well, then usually I'll throw in another caveat here. Okay, what if we had this? That out of those thousand guilty people who go free, 70% of them or 700 of them are going to commit new crimes on innocent people. Does that change the picture? And then many times my students are uncertain. But nevertheless, the principle is still there that we need to take great precautions to ensure that no one is wrongly convicted. There is a story, apparently it's a true account of an American law professor who had gone to a legal seminar in China. And there in China, he 
was engaged in a discussion with some Chinese law professors. And he made that statement. It is better that 10 guilty people go free than that one innocent person be convicted. A Chinese law professor thought a moment, and then he asked, better for whom? Seems like in his society, they'd be thinking more about the best interests of society as a whole, rather than that of individuals. But anyway, our point again, before government may punish crime, great precautions must be taken to ensure that no one is wrongly convicted. Now a ninth principle, and that's that once a defendant's guilt is proven, punishment is appropriate. But even then, the guilty defendant was entitled to certain protections because he is still a creature of God. He has the human dignity that comes from being created in his image. And punishment had to be appropriate for the crime. We see this term repeatedly in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And to the modern mind, that sounds rather strict. But compared to the rest of ancient society, that was an enlightened principle. It meant let the punishment fit the crime. Punishment should not be more severe than the crime itself. Let the punishment fit the crime. Anyway, so there are certain types of punishments, and we will talk about these at another time, but there are certain types of punishments that are authorized by Scripture for certain offenses. Among these are the death penalty for certain offenses, and the death penalty usually was by stoning, sometimes by hanging. Punishment of retribution, I'll talk about that in just a moment, but another kind of punishment that was often used was banishment, sometimes lashes, and the prohibition was no more than 39 lashes. And now the Old Testament had said 40, 40 lashes, the New Testament said 39, and you wonder what the reason for the difference is. Well, a couple possibilities. One is that they would use what was called a cat of nine tails, that is a whip that had three strands on it. And these three strands would sometimes have pieces of sharp rock or metal on them, and they would use that upon the person. So you strike once, and that's three cords, and so that's three lashes. Now, three times 13 is 39. Three times 14 is 42. So you got to stop at 39. Others suggest maybe the reason is to allow just a little margin of error just in case you've miscounted. But at any rate, that is one punishment. The other punishment, though, is restitution, that the defendant will have to pay the value of what he stole or of the damages that he incurred. And we think about this restitution, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, and anyway, if the defendant has been convicted of maiming someone and causing him to lose his hand, well, the picture we see of this is that the 
court is going to say, okay, Mr. Defendant, go to the back of the room, hold out your hand, and the man in the back with that sharp axe is going to cut it off, and then you present that hand to the victim, and he takes it home and mounts on his fireplace mantle with satisfaction. That's not really the meaning. The idea is the value of that hand. How much is that hand worth to you, Mr. Victim? Well, it was worth a lot to me. You see, I used to be a receiver for the Jerusalem football team, and now I can't catch passes with one hand, so I have to glean in the field. I can only glean with one hand, so it's cost me really about 40 shekels a month in income. Okay, then, Mr. Defendant, you owe the victim 40 shekels a month, and if you can't pay it, you will be his indentured servant and work for him as his indentured servant until that is paid off. Anyway, that's the way the Hebrew system of justice worked. Now, there's one thing you might notice that is missing here, and you don't see this in the Hebrew system of law, and that is prison. You do see a few prisons in the scripture, but usually those are run by the Romans or by the Egyptians or other foreign elements, or sometimes there are places to keep someone while he's awaiting trial, but sentencing somebody to prison for a crime, that is missing in the judicial system, the Judaic judicial system, and maybe with good reason. We see that being instituted in America in the 1700s, largely by the Quakers, and they favored institutions they called penitentiaries, because in these penitentiaries, criminals would be penitent for their crimes. Well, we question sometimes how penitent they really are and whether this is really an effective system of treating crime or not. And yes, I do think we need to be looking to alternatives to the prison system. But anyway, we look to these points then, basic principles of Hebrew law, and we'll see more when we get back to this, but God exists and he has one truth, one law, so there is one truth and one legal system, not competing systems, one true law that all human law conforms to. That law reflects the will and the character of God. It is to be obeyed not just because God ordained it, but because it is by its nature right. You can't separate God from his character. That God's justice requires punishment for sin and he can't compromise that principle because he is a just God. Man is created in God's image, and therefore he is of infinite value, and he is a rational creature, therefore, and responsible for what he does. But man is sinful. Man has sinned and has original sin. We have human government in order to punish crime and in order to preserve order. But before government may punish crime, Great precautions must be taken to ensure that the courts get at the truth and that only guilty people are found guilty and punished and innocent people are not. And finally, that once the defendant's guilt is proven, then punishment is appropriate. Well, with all of that in mind, we see a very enlightened system of law, one of which I am very pleased to say is a cornerstone of our legal system today. It's reassuring. I mean, it's. I'm not saying that uh, that I have a lot of doubt in our justice system, Colonel, but uh, we are seeing some people kind of pushing the envelope for, for where it's being used, and particularly where there's a politicized 
goal or outcome that's desired, I can see where, you know, those kind of restraints and, and serious justice, in other words, what's fair, sometimes go by, goes by the wayside in terms of, you know, achieving a particular political outcome. And I, I'd, I'd love to see a little bit more of us uh, drawing upon, you know, the wisdom of, of what we can, can glean from the Bible. Well, I certainly agree with you on that. In fact, one of the things about the Hebrew system is that it is geared toward getting the truth, finding out did the person commit the crime or didn't he. I'm not sure how committed our system is today to getting at the truth. Punishment is, the perjury that is, is kind of winked at. We very seldom hear somebody punished for perjury, and if we do, it's a very minor punishment unless the person happens to be a political opponent of the administration, in which case they throw the book at him. And very often we see testimony in court based upon plea bargain agreements. And you make deals with defendants that will give you a good deal on letting you plea bargain to some lower offense and giving you a rap on the knuckles as a punishment for it. If you will agree to testify against others, and usually the more juicy you're willing to make that testimony against others, the better deal you're going to get for yourself out of it. In other words, in so many ways, I seriously doubt that our system today is that committed to getting at the truth. I'm questioning whether our whole society is committed to getting at the truth. In fact, it seems that we have a society today that doesn't even believe there is such a thing as objective truth. And that's scary when you think about what it means for law and justice. One place where I've seen something that, that I find very encouraging is, is when it goes to a jury that really understands that uh, it's okay for them to, to weigh you know, the, the facts that have been presented, as well as weigh whether the law is being appropriately applied. And uh, you know, some people, I think, go into jury duty with the idea that, well, my job is to make sure that the state you know, is, is justified in punishing this person who wouldn't be on trial if they didn't do something. But I've seen some really serious injustice averted because there were jurors who were paying attention and, and who refused to, to go along with what would have been an injustice had they simply just rubber stamped, you know, what, what the prosecution was saying. And it is very fortunate we have people today who are still committed to truth and who are willing to serve on juries. And yes, it's when you say that there are people who just think that this person wouldn't be on trial if he hadn't done something. Well, that's not always the case. For one thing, if a grand jury indicts somebody, all they have concluded is that there is probable cause, not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, to believe that person has committed a crime. And in making the determination that there's probable cause, usually all they have heard from is the prosecutor's witnesses and his side of it. They haven't even heard the defendant's side yet. So there may well be another side of this entirely. But nevertheless, the burden is proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the highest standard of proof known to the legal system. And that is entirely appropriate because we should we'll probably never be able to avoid the, the circumstance where once in a while somebody is wrongly convicted. But we should have our system set up in such a way that such cases are going to be as few as possible. I think it's also a powerful incentive for a person who receives a summons to, to come and participate in jury duty 
not to view that as a burden or an inconvenience, but uh, rather that is a, a prime opportunity to, to be there and to, to be a bulwark against potential injustice. Exactly. That's one of the reasons we have a jury system, is the idea of the jury is 12 peers of the defendant, common citizens, people who are not on the government's payroll, people who don't owe any special favors to the prosecutor, they are going to make the determination. And I certainly believe that the institution of the jury is one that needs to be preserved.